Thank you for listening to the podcast for Icon Church, where we believe all people are icons of the invisible God, made in His image to reflect His glory and grace. For more information, go to iconchurch.org. All right. Good. Good job. You're being very social. I'm proud of you. Uh, hey, we spent, uh, we spent the, the beginning of the winter, January and February, uh, going through what we called our core practices. And uh, the plan was to have two gatherings in January and two in February and go through our four uh, core practices. And, uh, and then one of them got snowed out. So we only got through three of our core practices. Fortunately for us, uh, there we go. Fortunately for us, the, um, the fourth core practice that we didn't get to uh, really dovetails nicely with this first week of First Corinthians. So uh, just to recap briefly, because these practices are something uh, we want to come back to over and over and over this year. Uh, so these four core practices were humble repentance, okay, that we would be a people that are quick to own uh, our mistakes, own our sin, and, and repent of them humbly. Two, prayerful dependence, that we would, like Josh said, that we would be people that even in the good times are, are constantly dependent on God for everything that we need. Uh, three, community, gospel community, what we call the overlapping community, uh, that we would choose to put ourselves in relationships where we have more than one touch point to see that community, kind of the effects of that community uh, exponentially grow as we see that community overlap. Um, and then the fourth core practice that we want to focus on uh, for this year and, and really introduces us to First Corinthians is gospel clarity gospel clarity, that um, we are in a neighborhood and in a city uh, where the temptation can be for us to kind of equivocate or to, to obscure the, the clarity of the gospel, to kind of beat around the bush a little bit, to not offend or to not hurt feelings or to not, you know, cross cultural barriers. And, and we feel like that is uh, the opposite of what our city needs, the opposite of what our neighborhood needs, the opposite of what we need. Um, we need to, to understand understand the clarity of the gospel. We need to understand the power and the strength of the gospel. And the best way to do that is to be really clear uh, about the gospel. So from tonight through August, we are going to be teaching through the book of 1 Corinthians. Okay, and we're uh, entitling this series The Gospel-Formed Church um, because we want this book very obviously, to shape the way we begin, kind of our first foot forward, um, as they talk about when you have babies, uh, those first couple of months and those first two years are so forming, so formational for who uh, that child is going to become. We think the same is true for the church. And so we want to be really intentional about how we start, and 1 Corinthians uh, is, is where we want to begin. Now, I want to give you a little background on, uh, on this book before we get into it, because I think it'll, it'll kind of give you a fuller picture of perhaps why we chose this. So um, I was reading a bunch of commentaries this week, and uh, there was this one section uh, from a commentary by a guy named David Garland where he described Corinth. Okay, the, the city uh, that this letter is written to. And I want to read this description. Just see if uh, this reminds you of anywhere. He says this. He says, Corinth was an aspirational city. Its citizens were looking to advance on the ladder of upward social mobility. And they did this by aspiring to affluence for the sake of establishing their own honor. 
The core community and core tradition of the city culture were those of trade, business, entrepreneurial pragmatism in the pursuit of success. And perhaps no city in the empire offered so congenial an atmosphere for individual and corporate advancement. Alongside the clamoring for affluence and honor, Corinth was also an explorational city. It was characterized by a cosmopolitan spirit and religious diversity. Being a center for trade, Corinth was occupied and regularly, regularly visited by a diverse group of people from all walks of life. As a result, Christ, uh, Corinthians were rootless, cut off from their country background, drawn from races and districts all over the empire. It was a city that contained a variety of religious faith communities so that the everyday Corinthian had any number of potential options when thinking about which religion or belief system might fit him or her best. As a cosmopolitan city, Corinth was a religious melting pot with older and newer religions flourishing side by side. In other words, they could choose from a great cafeteria line of religious practices. So yeah, not unlike our city today. So there's some, there's some kind of obvious parallels that we can draw that the people that Paul is writing to that were living in Corinth were dealing with some of the same ideas and values that we are today. Now, obviously, this is a pre-modern society that, you know, a lot of the details are very, very different than what we're dealing with. But as you'll see, as we go throughout the book, a lot of the ideas, a lot of the questions uh, and, and things that the Corinthians were wrestling with are not dissimilar from what we wrestle with with today. Now, to be clear, I'm not choosing 1 Corinthians because the church is a model of what we want to be like. Not at all. In fact, um, if anything, I would describe the church as divisive, arrogant, self-important, jealous, sexually immoral, selfish, conniving, and idolatrous. This is not my hope for you, Okay. <laughs> I mean, some of the stories are kind of famous uh, in terms of the Bible, and that's hard to do because there's a lot of jacked up stories in the Bible, um, but there's a dude sleeping with his dad's wife. There are people getting drunk at communion, uh, people comparing spiritual gifts and like trying to one-up each other on spiritual gifts, which is like Christian nerddom like crazy, and then discrimination was taking place in the church where the rich people were looking down on the poor and actually kind of taking advantage of them, Okay. So this is not the reason why I want to teach through 1 Corinthians. So what is? Well, the way in which Paul addresses these issues and speaks to the cultural values of the day, which I think are not dissimilar from our cultural values, the way, in fact, he introduces this whole letter, I think is exactly what we want to be shaped by. Right? So um, it, it's unique and somewhat surprising the way he begins. So I want to look at the first nine verses of 1 Corinthians uh, together and, uh, and, and, and look at what Paul has to say, how he addresses these things. So uh, follow along with me. 1 Corinthians 1, 1. This is Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. 
that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that we would be a church different from the Corinthians in our faithfulness and obedience, but Lord, that we would be the same as them and that we would hear this word from Paul, that we would be open to hearing what he has to say to us, what the Spirit has to say to us through him, that we would learn and grow and ultimately we would be shaped by the gospel, formed into the people you want us to be. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Now, when uh, the Corinthians received this letter, they, they had to assume it was going to be bad news, right? I've been, I've been studying this passage now for a couple weeks, and uh, I was thinking about it the other day. Um, anytime, so we live in a house with two floors, and all the bedrooms are upstairs and the living room and kitchen stuff downstairs. And uh, anytime you, I, I hear screaming or fighting or something upstairs or someone yells down, one of my kids, I have five children, uh, and it feels like 5,000, but I'm, I'm pretty positive it's five. But anytime I hear the screaming, the yelling, the fighting, and I start to go upstairs, we have the creakiest stairs in the world. Like, I feel completely safe at night because any thief, robber, or whatever, if they were coming into our house up to the bedroom, I would hear them immediately, and, and I, I, so I, I feel good about it. But I start to walk up those stairs, and I, I, I have this feeling that my kids are like, okay, here we go, right? Like, it's, I, we know what's about to happen, right? And so I get to the top of the stairs, and they give me that look like, all right, give it to us. You know, so they just, you know, like, they, they know, they know what's coming. And I got to imagine the, the church in Corinth, they, they understand how jacked up they are. They're, they're in fighting and being divisive, and they, they got all kinds of mess that we're going to talk about. And so when they get this letter, and, and whatever elder of the church unrolls it and starts to read it to the community, I think they had to be surprised by the way Paul starts. Because he, he calls them in, uh, in verse 2, he says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Now he says two things about them that at, at first blush we would go, ah, is that true? Right, he calls them sanctified, which is a, kind of a Bible word, for those of you who don't know, is a Bible word for pure. Right, that they have been purified is essentially what Paul's saying. And then he calls them saints, just like all the other churches, just like all the other people who call upon the name of the Lord. Now, I, I, I've got to imagine they, they are breathing somewhat of a sigh of relief at this, that he doesn't just immediately go to the church in Corinth. What are you thinking? Right? Like the, the fact that he doesn't start there has got to be like, okay, all right, you know, we've got a little more time. So the question is, as we know kind of what's coming, why does Paul start by calling them sanctified saints? Well, because that's who they are, right? Like theologically speaking, 
That's, that's true about them, that no matter what their behavior has been, if they have placed their hands into Christ, or placed their lives into the hands of Christ, if they have given themselves in faith to Christ, they are theologically sanctified saints. How is this true? Well, um, the gospel talks about who we are and what we do in slightly different ways. But um, before I get to that, I want to take a step back because um, I think that there is a problem that everybody in the world is trying to solve. Every single person and every uh, community, every society, every culture, every religion, every ideology, every philosophy, everybody is trying to solve the same basic problem. And it's this. We are here. That we exist, our behavior, our decisions, our lives are somewhere around here, and then there is some ideal that is here. Okay? So our, our lives are here, and there is some ideal. And I say ideal um, simply because some people would call this God, but not all of us. There are some, uh, most of our neighbors would not call this God at all, but they deal with essentially the same problem. But see, everybody solves this problem in different ways. We all see that there's a problem. We see that, gosh, I'm not who I'm supposed to be. I'm not who I should be. Or at least I'm not who I could be. And so we see this gap between what is and what should be. And everybody kind of solves it different ways. So um, our culture even solves this problem in different and slightly contradictory ways, right? Um, Some in our culture would say that there, there really is no ideal. There is no top bar, so to speak. There is no God, certainly, and there is no objective morality. And so if we can just kind of take away that top bar, then there is no gap uh, to deal with at all, right? Or if we don't take away the top bar at all, we say, well, we're in charge of this top bar. So yes, this is who I am, but the ideal is whatever you say that that ideal is, right? Here's the problem with that. Um, there are several, but one in particular, no matter what that ideal is, no matter what that bar, no matter what you set for yourself, you can never live up to even your own ideal. Right? I mean, I'm not going to make you raise your hand, but I, I, I would ask you to raise your hand if you are fully what you think you ought to be today. If you are who you think you should be or who you think you could be, if your behavior matches what you think it should be or could be, my guess is that we wouldn't have a lot of hands go up. See, no matter how low we set that ideal bar, and man, I know we're good at setting it low sometimes, we still can't quite live up to it. But see, that's not the only way our culture solves this problem. Um, We also solve this problem with this kind of therapeutic idea that we are good enough, right? I I hear this all the time. You are enough, right? You are good enough. Everything that you need is inside you, which is to say, essentially, if there are these two bars, there is an ideal, but you are it, like this, this low bar, essentially the low bar is super, super high that everything you could be is in you and it's just a matter of you figuring out what that is because you are enough. Now, I, I, I feel like I don't even have to go too far into this one because I think we know there's some of this like moral intuition in us that knows that's not true. 
that when we close our eyes at night and replay the day, and we replay the moments where we failed to be what we want to be, we see others who are what we wish we were, but I think we know better than that. And besides, the, the kind of hypocrisy is that Americans spend billions and billions of dollars to not be who they are in health products, in gym memberships that we don't use, in uh, uh, I was name specific drugs, but we'll just say drugs in general. We spend billions because we know we're not enough. And if we could just be a little bit more, we know or we believe that we would be fulfilled in a way that we aren't now. Besides, I mean, think about it this way. If you're enough, then what is the desire in you? What is the motivation in you to grow or to learn or to be anything other than what you are? This, this idea that you are enough and everything you are is good enough and just don't worry about it. There is no higher bar. You are the bar. It actually demotivates any sense of growth or aspiration, which is foolish. Religions answer this question slightly differently. Most of the world's religions answer the question basically the same way. They say, yes, there is a really high bar and, 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 and there is a really low bar, but... If you follow our regimen, if you kind of do the right things and practice the right things, then you can kind of climb up the mountain to the guru or God that is at the top, right? And this is the basic belief system of every religion, that you, there is a gap, but you can fill that gap if you just work hard and be disciplined. In fact, um, the religion of capitalism is not altogether different, is it? Religion of capitalism essentially says there is a gap. It's this is you down here, and this is the ideal you up here, and what bridges that gap? Whatever product the ad is selling you. Right? Essentially, every advertisement you've ever seen, I don't know how many of you are in advertising and marketing, so just, I'm sorry in advance, um, but, but every advertisement says, you're not enough in this particular way, but you could be if you had our product and used it. If you just bought our product, you'd be more beautiful, more successful, more wealthy, more the you that you were made to be. It's essentially a religious argument that these advertisements are making. That there is a path to self-fulfillment, but you have to walk it. Okay, so the problem with this, of course, is a number of things. One is we will never walk the path perfectly. We will never climb the mountain. And, and what breaks down to a great degree about this metaphor is that it's a mountain, meaning it's still on earth. So when you climb this mountain to the top, even if you were the most disciplined person in the world, the top of the mountain is still earthly. It's still human. It's still of us. This is an essentially humanistic vision of self-fulfillment. So 
the culture answers in different ways. Religions broadly answer in different ways. Some Christian leaders do a bit of both where they kind of lower God and raise us and give us kind of a, basically the cultural argument of God's not that different and not that other and you're pretty great, but they just kind of couch it with religious language. Paul does none of these things to solve the problem. How does he solve the problem? Verse 4. He says, I, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even in the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, um, first, I want us to see what Paul doesn't say in this passage. Um, Kenneth Bailey, in his uh, commentary on this passage, says this. He says, this is Paul at his diplomatic best. He cannot thank God for their faith, like he does to the Romans, or for their partnership in the gospel, like he does in Philippians, or for their faith and love, like he does for the Colossians, or for their faith, love, and hope like he does for the Thessalonians. So he offers thanks for the grace given to them. This is like a father addressing a difficult child at dinner and saying to him, Johnny, every night I am deeply grateful to your mother who bathes you and dresses you in clean clothes before supper. This is not a compliment to Johnny. The Corinthians had received a great deal of grace. Their responses to that grace were deeply flawed. The kindest thing Paul can honestly say to them is to remind them of the grace they have freely received. See, Paul says the truest things about them. He says that they are deeply loved by God. He tells them that they've received an incredible amount of grace from God. That God has given them everything they need. He's given them the knowledge they need. He's given them the gifts they need. He's given them the salvation that they need, that that God has provided everything for them. He talks to them about their identity, not about their behavior, which is a fundamental difference for how Paul solves this problem of where we are and where we ought to be, of where we are and where God is. That's what Paul doesn't say. What does Paul say? Jesus Christ will sustain you to the end, guiltless on the day of our Lord. Stephen Um describes it this way. He says, all of the realities of Paul's surprising encouragement are grounded in Christ. The Christian's identity is not self-made or self-maintained. It is the result of an outside action of God on our behalf. We are sanctified, not in ourselves, but in Christ Jesus. We are called to be saints, not because we are inherently saintly, but because we call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The grace and peace we experience is delivered to us from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The grace we experience was not earned, but was a gift given to us in Christ. Our speech and knowledge are enriched in him. We are confident in our faith because God confirmed the testimony about Christ among us. 
Our future hope is not in our manifold gifts or in the potential of our achievements, but in the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ, God sustains us to the end. He has promised to make us the guilty, guiltless, on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are absolutely certain of this because God is faithful. And he has called us into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. See, for Paul and for Christianity, for the gospel, God could not be higher. I mean, nobody talks about God being more divine and holy and other than Christianity does. Christianity does not attempt to make God anything but the most holy and divine being in the universe, so separate and so other. And at the very same time, Christianity talks about humanity as being lower than anyone else. There is a greater gap. As, as Tim Keller says, um, we, we are more sinful than we ever could admit, and yet more loved than we ever dared hope. That this great gap between a divine God and a sinful mankind is filled not by our effort, not by squeezing the gap artificially, but by God himself coming down and sustaining us, making us guiltless until the day of our Lord. That is the, the greatness of the gospel, and, I, and I, I believe it rings truer than any of the alternatives. So here's what I think. I think that in those moments of honest self-reflection, I think that in those moments when we're really honest with ourselves, that the idea that we're actually pretty great and we are enough rings really hollow. Because we've spent 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years or more trying desperately to be enough. There's nothing we want more than to be enough. And we've tried and tried and tried and tried and tried. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know we're not. Our track record says we're not. And yet, I think on the other side too, the idea of a, of a God who isn't holy and other and divine and majestic and, and high the idea of a God who's, who's less than that, sullied, like, uh, and almost, uh, almost human-like, like the Roman gods were, isn't aspirational enough for us. If I'm going to believe in a God, I want the God of the universe who sustains the universe in his hands. I, I don't want some demigod, some lesser God, some lesser kind of watered-down version of a God who just kind of pats me on the head and sends me along my way like a dowdy old grandfather. I don't want that God. That God doesn't have the power to save. That God doesn't have the power to create. That God doesn't have the power to sustain. So not only do I believe the gospel is true, I believe in my soul that it makes the best sense of the universe. It makes the best sense of the deepest desires of our hearts and what we know to be true about us. That if there is a God, he is high. And what we know about ourselves is that we are low. No one would have known this better than Sosthenes. 
In verse 1, if you remember, it says, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, which this is pretty common for Paul to kind of um, tell, you know, tell whoever he's writing to who he's traveling with at the same time. But Sosthenes is unique because he comes up earlier in the story. In Acts chapter 18, there's a character named Sosthenes. And now, do we know that it's the exact same Sosthenes? No, but that doesn't seem like a super common name. And what we know about Sosthenes is that he's from Corinth. In Acts chapter 18, we see this really interesting story where Paul is there in the synagogue preaching in Corinth, and a mob tries to get him imprisoned. And that mob is led by a man named Sosthenes. He was a Jewish leader in the synagogue, and they brought charges against Paul, Timothy, and Silas uh, in front of the Roman judge named Gallio, and Gallio essentially dismissed the charges and kind of mocked Sosthenes and his little mob of, of Jewish leaders, and when they left the courthouse, they were so ashamed that the mob, this mob of Jewish men who had followed Sosthenes into the Roman courtroom, beat Sosthenes on the steps of the courthouse because of the shame he had brought them, while the Roman guards and officials looked on and did nothing. So in Acts chapter 18, we read about this guy Sosthenes being rejected and and humiliated, embarrassed by the Romans, and then turned on, abandoned by his own people, the Jews, Jewish leaders. And here we are, just a few chapters later in the story, and Paul says, I'm writing to you, Corinthians, and your brother Sosthenes, if you remember. Now, I don't know what happened between Acts 18 and 1 Corinthians 1, but it's not hard to imagine. It's not hard to imagine Paul in the aftermath of seeing this. I mean, Paul is there. He sees this whole thing. No doubt saw Sosthenes get beaten on these steps. It's not hard to imagine Paul in the days following going to Sosthenes' house. It's not hard to imagine that he would have given him sympathy, that he would have supported him, that he would have shared the gospel about Jesus Christ being the Messiah with Sosthenes. It's not hard to imagine that Sosthenes understood the gospel in new ways because he's now seeing it in light of this humiliation that he has experienced at the hands of the Romans and the rejection and and. Uh, and, and beating he took at the hands of the Jews, that he is seeing the one person who is seeking him, who is his posture for him is sympathy and love, that, he, that Paul alone comes to Sosthenes and shares the gospel, this love that Christ has for him. It's not hard to imagine that. And now look, just a few years later, Sosthenes is with Paul co-writing a book back to his people calling them to respond to the gospel. That's the heart of grace. The heart of grace is to say that God is big and we are not. And there was nothing that could fill that gap except God himself. And he did. He did. And we're going to read a lot about the Corinthians and the, the decisions they've made in, in light of the gospel and the decisions, the way that they have rejected it and not lived consistently with the, uh, in light of the gospel and the, all the mistakes and all the sin. And, but it's interesting to me that Paul starts at the very beginning by telling them who they are, reminding them who they are. 
See, every once in a while, when my son uh, is, is doing coal things, and, uh, and, and uh, I, most of the time, if I'm really honest, most of the time when coal is doing coal things, uh, I, come up, I, I come upstairs hot. I'm, I'm, ready to, I'm ready to do some whooping, is what I'm ready to do. And, and I'm, I'm sick and tired of whatever it is he's doing for the uh, hundredth time, and, uh, and, and I'm ready. But every once in a while, every once in a while, I have the wherewithal. Every once in a while, I have the presence of mind to start by getting down on one knee with Cole and saying, Cole, is there anything that you can do to make me love you less? And he knows the answer is no. And I say, Cole, is there anything that you can do to make me love you more? He knows the answer is no. He always says it reluctantly. He usually goes, no, no. She tests my grace. <laughs> but when I start by reminding him that my love for him is constant, that no matter what he has done, no matter what he will do, that my love for him does not change. And when I have the presence of mind to do what Paul is doing here for the Corinthians, to root them in love, to root them in their identity, the rest of the conversation goes much, much better. Because you're going to see, he, he, he gets hot quick after this. There's some stuff that needs to be dealt with. There's no question. He's not soft peddling the gospel in any way. But he starts with this. You are sanctified saints. Not because you're good, not because you're smart, not because you're successful, not because you're entrepreneurial, not because you're big, not, not for any reason, but because of Christ. You are sanctified saints, and there is nothing you can do about that. The gospel eliminates striving, and ranking, and comparing. It does away with shame, and guilt, and condemnation. Hear this. You aren't enough. You aren't enough. But he is. You aren't good. But he is. You aren't strong. But he is. You can't climb the mountain. In any way, God's not on a mountain. You can't climb the mountain, but he came down from heaven. He took on flesh the one who is holy and other and divine to the greatest degree we can imagine was also the one who came to be with us, to enter in with us and to bridge that gap. That's the gospel. That's grace. That's what has the opportunity to shape and form this community from day one. And that's the invitation. Paul is inviting them, and as he said at the beginning, to all those who call on the name of Christ Jesus to be sanctified saints, to own that identity today. Say, I, I am not enough, but he is. If we get nothing else in our Christian life but that, 
It's enough. It's enough. Because then we can walk out these doors and not try to be something that we're not. We don't need to muster up the strength to be good, to be enough, to be strong, to be successful. He has done it all for us. And now we walk. And now we pursue. And now we step and now we grow. But not to earn. He has already earned. There's nothing left for us to earn. There's nothing you can do to make him love you more. There's nothing you can do to make him love you less. He loves you the most because he already went to the cross for you and there is nothing more he can do. There is no greater love that can be demonstrated than the cross. Pray. Jesus, thank you. There is little else we can say but thank you. You have provided everything. You made us, you sustain us, you saved us, you walk with us, you change us, you grow us. You speak to us and teach us. All that we need is you. And we have it. There's nothing between us You made sure of that. You came to be with us, to be among us, to demonstrate what that kind of kingdom life can be like. You showed us what it can be like. You showed us what a world without pain, without death, without hardship could be like. And then, then you took on all the pain and the death and the hardship that we have wrought in this world so that we can one day experience fully what we saw through you in part. So Lord, I pray that we would be changed by grace, shaped by grace, assured of the grace that we have. And that for those who are here and are not Christians, and I, uh, I know and I'm thankful that you are here, but I, Lord, I, I pray, God, that you would expose them to grace in a way that they have never, never even considered it before, never felt it before, that they would know your love, know the acceptance of your grace in a way that they have not before. But that they would feel that grace is not saying you're okay. That's not grace. That they would experience grace that says you're not enough and you're not okay, but I love you anyway and I'm going to make you something new. that we would all know that grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Every week we respond in a few ways uh, to the preaching of the gospel. Um, In a moment, uh, Zach will lead us uh, in a few more songs. Um, We'll take communion together. We'll give our offering. Um, but before we do any of that, we want to take just a couple of minutes because there are, are, are so few moments in our lives that are free from distraction. So few moments in our lives where we have silence. And, and so if, if I can provide nothing else for you tonight, I want to provide for you two minutes of undistracted silence. Or at least quiet. Zach's going to play a little bit, but otherwise... So we're going to take, take two minutes, and, and I would encourage you just to let, let what you heard tonight get deep on you. Think about it. Pray about it. 
confess sin to God in this moment in preparation for our time together in communion. So let's bow our heads together.